says Paul, for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship God by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own, in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I am a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if ever there was one. Amen! Guys, <laughs> bunch of Christians. I was a member of the Pharisees, who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Because of what Christ has done. Let's flick back. Uh, keep reading. This is the problem. I just want to keep reading because it's brilliant. But let's flip back. Please read the rest of Philippians chapter 3 when you get home. Flip to Galatians uh, chapter 5. And when you get home, read chapter 4 as well. Um, so, uh, Galatians chapter 4, Paul is speaking about how the... Um, the Galatians used to be slaves to their old gods. He says there in chapter 4, verse 8, Before you knew God, you Gentiles were slaves to so-called gods that didn't even exist. And he says, right, now these people are coming and they're wanting to enslave you again. They want you to follow the Jewish law. Verse 1 of chapter 5. So, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you're trying to make yourself right with God, you notice how he repeats the phrase? By keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What's important is faith expressing itself in love. You are running the race so well, who has held you back from following the truth? It isn't God, <coughs> certainly not, for He is the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is like a little yeast that, that it spreads through the whole batch of dough. I'm trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who has been confusing you. Dear brothers and sisters, if I was still preaching that you must be <coughs> circumcised, as some say that I do, why am I still being persecuted? If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. I just wish that those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. Or, if you read the footnote, would cut themselves off. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, which we as a church never do, watch out, beware of destroying one another. So I say let the Holy Spirit guide your whole lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil. Which is just the opposite of what the Spirit uh, desires. Um, and the Spirit 
gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbreaks of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Anyone worried now? But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Isn't that wonderful? Just as a by, by, by the by that the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. There is no law against such things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to His cross and have crucified them there. And since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let's not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Oh, I just want to carry on reading. It's so good, isn't it? When God looks at your life, when He thinks about you, how does He feel? Some might say, well, you know, God's, God's disappointed with me. God's angry with me. I, I haven't lived the way I should. I, I don't live the way I should. I, I sin in word and thought and deed. God is disappointed with me. Others will say, well, how does God think of me? God's proud of me. Have you met me? I'm a good person. I go to church. I, I keep the rules. I'm, I'm certainly better than others. Could we even dare to say, I don't come to church drunk? See, both responses assume that God approves or disapproves of based on how good we are. And if we're really good, we become self-righteous. If we live up to our standards, and I say our standards, and if we fail to live up to those standards, we feel really bad. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3 that he was one of these people who had mastered the art of being religious. He was convinced that he knew how to live to please God. And he went out of his way to live that sort of a life. He, his whole life was dedicated to ensuring that he pleased God. And not only himself, but, but he said, look, this is how you have to please God and I'm going to make sure that you please God. Um, David and I were talking last week about someone who, so a group of, of Christians who are going around saying, yes, we have to make sure that people in Australia live the way God wants because otherwise God will not be pleased with us. Check with David if I've misrepresented them. It's possible I have. 
That's about it. It's interesting, if you read through the Gospels, some of the <coughs> harshest things that Jesus says are directed against Pharisees like Paul or Saul as he was back then. By all outward appearances, Pharisees, religious people, look fantastic. But inside is a shambles. All human religion, whether it bears the, the name Christian or Islam or Hinduism or whatever, all human religion is basically legalism. Insisting this is the proper way to live. It, it's about an external set of rules that you have to tick off. This is how you have to speak. This is how you have to act. This is how you have to dress. This is how you have to do this. This is how your life should be there. This is what you have to do. Now hopefully some of you are going there going, did he just include Christianity with Islam and Hinduism and all of those? No, not true Christianity is different. But there are a lot of Christians who call themselves Christians but really are nothing but religious people. You might have met some. At times you look at some when you look at me. Probably if you turn to your neighbor, you've, you've seen them in that phase as well every now and again. But you know the good news of Jesus, not the news of religion, not the news of, of anything like that, but the good news of God is that we have been set free from having to tick boxes. We've been set free from this desperate struggle to keep in God's good books. And it is a struggle. Turn with me if you've got your Bibles again to Romans uh, chapter 7. Just have a listen to what Paul says. Uh, some of my favorite chapters, uh, chapter 6, 7 and 8. Chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says this. He says, uh, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? He's dealing with this whole question here in Romans as well. Is God's law this, this stuff that we should do? Is it wrong? Is it sinful? He says, no, of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known what, and he gives an example, what coveting is. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the Lord not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. And so I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and it deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. Still, the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. The problem is with me, says Paul. Even the best religious person knows that they are not 100% right. Because it's human nature. Let, let's just do a, a quick test here. Um, right. Can you put your hands up? Your, your right hand. Okay. What hand have you got up? Your right hand. Excellent. Put your hands down. Now, I, I want you to, whatever you do, do not think of chocolate ice cream right now. <laughs> what are you thinking about? 
I heard that one at the conference yesterday, and I was like, wow, I'm thinking of chocolate ice cream. <laughs> See, something about it, we're told, don't do it. We do it. And Paul, who was this guy who coveted, Paul realized as soon as the, he came across the command said, don't want somebody else's stuff, he was like, oh, yeah, but it's actually really nice. You see, the problem with, with legalism is that even though I'm not 100%, life's a bell curve. You know what? I, I'm so much better than Mark. And really, I'm better than Eric as well. And so, I, I, that, that old saying, if you, want to, if you want to escape from a bear, you don't have to be faster than the bear, you just have to be faster than your friend. <laughs> and that's how the legalist approaches life I just have to be better than the people around me because God's got this quota of people that he's going to accept and you know what I just need to be better the problem is God doesn't have a quota of people that he accepts and none of us can be good enough for God except that Jesus makes us so and that's the good news of the gospel, that we are free from the curse of the law, that we are free from our status as sinners. We are given this gift of being in a right place with God by, by faith, by trusting in Jesus. In Jesus, we are, we are perfect before God, and, and all of the law's demands are met, and then some, in Christ. And if we are in Jesus, then God looks at us and He says, Yes, you, you, you are perfect. I love you so much. Now the Galatians had heard this good news of, of how they had been set free from, from tick boxes and, and they trusted in God's grace. And, and then along came some teachers, probably Jewish teachers, uh, luring them back into another form of tick boxing. That sounds like judo. They used to tick pagan boxes, Gentile boxes, and these Jewish teachers came and said, okay, that's right. I'm so glad you're Christians, but you know what? You really need to tick some Jewish boxes. Because Jesus was a Jew, and salvation is from the Jews, as Paul even says. Great, you're a Christian, but what about the holy days? What about the feasts? And what about, what about getting circumcised, for goodness sake? You're forgiven in Christ Jesus. Well done. Make sure you don't lose it. You've got, to, you've got to make sure you don't lose it. You see, this is a problem. Has someone got their bulletin? There's a, there's a lovely little thing um, on the front there from Fran. A little picture. And how to become a legalist. Step number one, make rules outside of the Bible. You know the problem with that is you can be a legalist making rules inside the Bible. In fact, you can be a legalist doing nothing except what the Bible says. You can be a legalistic Bible basher. And God will look at you and go, Boy, you're really good. But I don't work on a quota. You're not 100%. How to become a legalist is not make rules outside the Bible. How to become a legalist is to live life ticking boxes. Now, I should probably 
put my hand up here and say that I struggle with this myself. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. In Galatians, we're being told you have to get circumcised, you have to follow the Jewish feasts and holy days. That's in chapter 4. Maybe the temptation for ticking boxes is slightly different for us today. But it's still about ticking boxes. And great, you're a Christian. That's wonderful. You're saved. But, but you know you have to go to church every week. You know, if you play sport on a Sunday, that's keep the Sabbath holy. Ignore the fact that it's a Saturday. Do you really want to have a drink? Are you actually going to smoke? You have to believe exactly what I believe, by the way. You have to speak like this. You have to dress like this. You have to do one hour of Bible study every morning before (coughs) 5 o'clock because that's what real Christians do. You have to make sure that you don't vote for this political party because if you do, you're not a real Christian and God will smite your face off. Make sure you do vote for that one because they tell the truth. (laughs) No, that's fine. It would be a change, wouldn't it? You see, for Paul... His point isn't what the tick boxes are. His point is that any move away from Jesus, even a move to the law of God, which is good and holy and right, is a retrograde move. Even if we're just doing it to be on the safe side. Yes, I've been saved by Jesus. I trust him absolutely. But, you know, just to be on the safe side, I'm going to make sure that I tick boxes because, you know, God might come to me and go, well, Nick... uh, Actually, you had to do it. And I was like, oh, good thing I did it anyway. Says Paul, how ridiculous. N.T. Wright's got a wonderful analogy. He says, uh, law, going back to tick boxes or check boxes, is like, it's like driving over a frozen lake in a car. Where the, the check boxes are like the car and circumcision is... Back in those days, that was like the first thing you had to do to prove that you were really going to drive across it, starting the engine. But says N.T. Wright, the problem is that spring has come and the lake has melted. That's not the way you get across the lake. And there's some great, if you go on, uh, on Netflix or YouTube, you can look at the, uh, the Mythbusters and they've actually got a show about how you can ride a motorbike across a lake of water if you go really, 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 really fast. If you go far enough, though, it starts sinking. And the distance from us to God is very far. To return to thinking we must obey the law to be right with God is to reject Jesus. If we insist on proving to God that we're good enough, God will say, fine, if you want to prove that to me, go ahead, I'll, I'll let you prove it. But, but when we're doing that, we're saying, well, thanks God for the offer of Jesus, it's really nice, it's swell God, but you know what, just l- let me try it for myself, I think I can do it. It says Paul in Galatians 5, especially verses 1 and 8, 
God doesn't want us to be enslaved to check boxes. He's called us to freedom, and that means trusting in Jesus Christ as our only hope. It means living by the Spirit, waiting for what is promised us, not trying to prove that we've managed to get it done by ourselves ahead of time. Have you ever done that? Somebody says, I'll, I'll do that for you tomorrow, and you go, well, I, I can do it. And then you do it quickly, and they're like, oh, well, you've done it. As much as we want to please God, even our best efforts are like a two-year-old drawing. Who's seen a two-year-old drawing? Legalism, the legalist says, look God, this is fantastic. This is going to be worth millions and millions of dollars. This is brilliant drawing. Frame it, stick it on the fridge. It's beautiful, it's amazing, it's incredible. You said draw me a picture of a vase and I drew you a picture of this amazing vase. It looks real. You can touch it. In the end it's just like... Maybe you can see the outline of a vase. The Christian response, living by the Spirit, says, God, I want to draw you a vase. And it looks horrible, God. And I wish it looked better. And the good news of the gospel is that God says, Wow, you know what? I love you so much. Let me take that picture. I'm going to stick it on my fridge. Everybody that comes around, you know, if you imagine God <coughs> as, a, as a trinity, I don't know if this is sacrilegious or not, but, but the Father saying to the Son, Hey, look at this picture. Isn't it amazing? And they go, Wow, this is incredible. And they know it's rubbish. They know it's rubbish. But the fact is they don't accept it because it's beautiful. They accept it because they love the person who gave it to them. We are saved because God loves us. Not because of our skills. Not because we're good enough. We're saved in Christ alone. By God's grace alone. By trusting in Jesus alone. Let's head towards the end here by saying shouldn't we expect Christians to act right? I mean, it's all very well to say, don't go back to ticking boxes, don't go back to checklists, but isn't there a place where we should expect certain behavior from Christians? Shouldn't we expect Christians to think right, to speak right, to do right? And shouldn't we expect other people to live the way God wants them to live? Haven't we got a responsibility to be salt of the earth, to, to, to make sure that society lives the way God means for it to live? Well, yes, that's true, but... I think, and, and I'm a little bit indebted to what I heard yesterday here. I came home and I, I amended the sermon. Because I think Paul suggests that Christians who live in the Spirit are not under the law. But yet, if you read through the New Testament, you find that Christians are meant to be holier than the legalists. certainly more loving because they are being transformed by God's spirit from within in loving others verse 14 says they, they fulfill the whole law they show that God's law is written on their hearts and you know what what a, what a Christian does can look very similar to what a legalistic person does 
Sometimes it can be hard to tell them apart, but, but the difference is the motivation and the source of that behavior. The legalist is motivated by a set of external rules. I have to tick that off. I have to tick that off. I have to tick that off. Now those rules might be God's laws. They might be what we think God expects from us. But, but they're out there. There's something there that we have to do. That we have to do. Christians, says Paul, live because God lives in us by His Spirit. And what motivates us is not a set of rules out there, but, but God in us. Christianity is an inside-out transformation. <coughs> Paul says, don't conform to the world in Romans 12, but, but let God transform you, transform your thinking from the inside out. That's Christianity. Religion and legalism is an outside paint job. In Romans 7, I think says to us, especially if we look at verse 6, Now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. If you take an external law and you join it up to a sinful heart, to a sinful person, you end up with death. That's what Paul says. He says, here is my nature to sin when I, hear some, when I hear don't do it or when I hear do it. My inclination is to do the opposite. That's with the law out there. But, says Paul, when we live by the Spirit, when God comes and lives in us, He writes the law on our hearts. And, and all of a sudden it's, it, it's different because God gives us His Spirit. And, and yes, there's this fight between our old self, but, but we are not under an obligation. We don't have to go to that. God, by His Spirit, gives us a desire to please Him. And not to please Him so that He will accept us, but to please Him because He has accepted us and we love Him. Being free is having a relationship with God, not having a set of rules out there. And life is a battlefield with our old self and the Spirit pulling us in different directions. And it's easy to enforce certain behaviors on people. Totalitarian regimes do it all the time. But inwardly, people will always rebel. And it will always bubble to the surface. We saw the Arab Spring last, last year. You keep people oppressed for long enough, and it looks like things are just calm on the surface, but it's like a duck floating on the water. You look under the surface, and it's going crazy. You see, what the Spirit does is to come and live in us and give us a deeper desire, a, a longing to please the one who loves us so much. And yes, sometimes we sin. Sometimes in a moment we desire sin more than we desire God. But the Spirit's job, or the Spirit's role in our lives is to give us a longing for God. You know, if your heart is set on keeping rules, you're going to fail. Guaranteed. Spoken from experience. I don't have to tell you that, do I? But if your heart is set on loving God, you're going to keep the rules. 
Not because, oh, well, I love God, so I have to keep the rules, but just, I love God, and so I am keeping the rules. I heard a story yesterday about uh, a young lad who was very slovenly. He would play computer games all day. His shirt would be sort of ripped and torn. His hair was always a mess. Uh, he looked horrible. Never shampooed his hair or anything like that. And his mother, his poor, long-suffering mother, would go to him every day and say, Charlie, you need to wash your hair. Charlie, get some new clothes. Charlie, you look horrible. Charlie, when last did you bath? Charlie, all these things. And, and this would go on for months and years, and he would just go on with life. And then one day, he suddenly starts shampooing his hair and got a new shirt on. And he started actually showering. And he started looking very spruce. You know why, of course. He got a girlfriend. <laughs> His mother saying, you have to, 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 made no difference. What made a difference, and I forget who it was, I think it was, oh, one of the um, revival preachers spoke of it as the expulsive force of desire. Which one? Uh, the expulsive desire of a new affection. Because you see what happens when you, when you have a new affection, when you have a, a desire. This kid wasn't putting on a shirt because, you know what, I have to put on a shirt, otherwise no one will like me. He put on the shirt because, wow, that person likes me and I just want to be the best I can for that person. Because they like me. I mean, that's, that's what the Spirit does. It comes in and says, hey, God has adopted you. You can call him Father, Abba. And we go, wow, it's incredible. I want to make him smile. That's brilliant. Isn't that amazing? See, that's the difference between a Christian and a legalist. The legalist says, oh, I have to do it because otherwise God won't like me. The Christian says, God loves me and so I want to do it. Can external rule keeping bring about change? Absolutely not. We are sinful from birth, our inclination to sin. There can be no real change in us or in people around us if the Spirit of God doesn't move in and produce this expulsive desire that all of a sudden... We, we want God more than we want anything else. You see, if, if we insist on teaching people rules, we will have well-behaved sinners who are going to hell. If we introduce people to Jesus, and if God starts working in their lives, and if they see how glorious He is and how majestic He is and how much He loves them, In those days, you will not have to say to your neighbor, know the Lord, because they will know him. When God looks at you, what does he feel? If you think God's proud of you, I hope God is proud of us, but But in the way that a parent is proud of a two-year-old who takes their first step and then falls down again. If you think God looks at you and thinks he's, you think he's angry or disappointed or embarrassed, 
you. Yeah, God doesn't like us living the kind of lives that, that don't match up to his. But you know what? When God looks at us, the one emotion that is on his thoughts is not pride, is not anger or embarrassment or disappointment, but love. why he sent Jesus you want to spot a legalist (coughs) look at if they've really understood that God loves them if you want to spot it in yourself if you struggle with legalism say to God God I want to know you stop looking at yourself Maybe for every time you look at yourself, look ten times to Jesus. You go, wow, God, you are 